The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast. Bringing you strange but true things from the past. It's not the average history that you learned in school. We're bringing you the heroes and bringing you the fools. And stories that are just too crazy to believe. The stranger than fiction and super unique. Hi, Robert. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks a lot. Glad to be here. How are you today, sir? Good. Sunny day. It's not so cold. Oh, very good. Uh, uh, contrast that to us here in Ohio. I spent my first hour shoveling this morning. <laughs> uh, and here I am actually in Concord, Massachusetts. Okay. Uh, all right. Well, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. You are uh, a historian with the uh, University of Connecticut, Professor Emeritus. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background. Well, I grew up in Bridgeport, Connecticut, in you know, an industrial immigrant city in the 1950s and 60s at the kind of height of the Cold War manufacturing boom. And it's a city that you would hardly think of as you know the classic New England town, or at least classic industrial town. Um, very much in contrast to Concord, Massachusetts, which if you were to come here today, you'll still see the center of town anchored by churches, something of a town green, not really a big long common, but you know where the um, stores are, the public buildings. You can look at the 1839 drawing of the center of Concord uh, and John Barber's historical collections, and you can see the center of town today and say, ah, oh, Look at that, there's still the burial ground. The irony is that Bridgeport, Connecticut, which was once part of Fairfield, Connecticut, was settled in part by some early Puritan settlers of Concord who felt that there were too many people and not, a, not enough wealth. So they moved down to the Connecticut coastline. So Concord often seen as the ideal New England town was as much a source for Bridgeport, the down at the heels immigrant industrial town as of its own. So our stories of New England could be, have very different destinations from a common pool. Okay. And you, uh, I brought you on to bring, uh, uh, to talk about your most recent work, uh, but if you could just, cause it's kind of a sequel in a way, could you briefly touch on the other work set in Concord that you're also uh, known for. Right, so Concord, you could say, is the home of two revolutions. The first of April 19, 1775, when Minutemen turned out to meet the invading British regulars, the Redcoats, at the North Bridge on April 19, 1775, and in Emerson's words, fired the shot heard around the world. You know, Concord likes to take credit for starting the American Revolution. My first book, The Minutemen in the World, asked the question, how and why conquered as the setting? And um, what did this great national event have to do with local life? In what ways were the ongoing uh, developments in the town, the changes in conflicts, the feuds among neighbors consequential for how the people ended up resisting uh, the British regulars? And what was the consequences of the battle for the um, Thomas' participation in the war that followed and in the New Republic. So that was the first book. And in important ways, it's a study of, a, of what we think of as a national event, 
in a local context, but not to make it narrow, but to see how things that we know about as just slogans and, and uh, caricatures end up part of people's lived experience and the development of people's ideas. In a sense, it's a look at the American Revolution from the ground up on how it was experienced. The new book, The Transcendentalist in Their World, looks at the intellectual movement we call transcendentalism that's associated with the writings of Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry David Thoreau, Bronson Alcott, and Margaret Fuller. Um, Fuller and Alcott lived at different times in Concord, Fuller never as permanent. But Emerson and Thoreau and the other writers who were their like-minded thinkers ended up um, becoming major national figures. And as a result, the town and its writers come to be identified together. And so here we see the first great literary intellectual movement in the United States coming out of the place that had originally been the home of the first great national movement for political independence. I, I love this approach because it maybe less so now, but in, in the past, certainly that we've tended to silo national history as separate from local history. And you, you do a great job of saying, you know, they speak to each other, particularly in this town. And I think that's great. Thank you. Well, I saw this years ago when I was working on my PhD dissertation and writing The Minutemen in Their World. I was at the National Park Service headquarters in Concord, overlooking the whole area, the farms of the Buttricks and the Brown families and the hillside that goes down, slopes down to the North Bridge. And I'm looking at the diorama that was there and you see everybody under glass, the British soldiers, the provincial troops, um, all lined up under glass, frozen forever in time. And I thought of this as like, and then the battle happens. And if CNN and NBC News had all been around, they'd swap an area where there's a national event, come and interview everyone, and then they're gone a day later. And mm -hmm. I thought, what happened before? What happened after? Who cleaned up? <laughs> so yeah, um, it's so I, I really I was a journalist in another life. And so I thought of this both as history, but also journalistically, you know. What's the bigger story you would tell besides the thing that was headline news for a day? Okay, so the book we're talking about then today is, is the, the follow-up, um, The Transcendentalists and Their World. Uh, and I guess just, you know, we're going to go as basic as we possibly can. What on earth is a transcendentalist? Let's start there. So in 1834, 35, as people who were called Transcendentalists began to get a lot of public notice. Critical uh, figures, especially in the Unitarian clergy and people in high public offices, uh, in the cultural and social lead of the day, said with the same crankiness as you tried to muster up, what on earth is transcendentalism? <laughs> it's this airy conscious about the soul and nature and, and, and fulfillment and how do we get our knowledge but from intuition, which you call reason? Um, and so people at the time said, we don't understand what you're talking about. Can't you make yourself plain and clear? Can't you describe the world as we see it, as this empirical thing that you go out to every day? And people who were spokesmen for this new way of seeing things were picking up on 
the ideas of Immanuel Kant uh, in Germany, of the idealist and romantic movement that sprang from that, the poetry and ideas of Samuel Taylor Coleridge in England, of Wordsworth, the poet, of Goethe, the German scientist and thinker. And what they were picking up on is a notion that rather than take our definition of the world from things as they are in the sense impressions, we can have an understanding of the world intuitively. Part of that understanding is actually in our intuitive morality, that there's a goodness within us that we can have connection to. Part of this is radical. It seems sort of abstruse and philosophical. But if you take your definition of the world from the sense impressions that bombard you, then all you can ever know is the status quo. If you can know something before you've had experience or deeper than experience, then you can imagine the world is different. And so that was a key part of this. Now, what Emerson and the New Englanders did, especially Emerson, was to tie this notion that each of us is connected to a larger spiritual force, to, if you will, through nature to the universe, to the soul, as Emerson would call it. So would we and, call this God specifically, or would they call it something else? They took God out of the sky and put God in nature and connected to nature through this, this soul, this, through your own intuitive understanding. When you're in, you know, think about the common experience. When you're out at night, all alone, staring up at a starlit sky, if you're looking out on, on a national park at Yosemite at the mountains, you're alone and not being bombarded by all the other tourists with you. If you're doing it, doesn't everybody have that experience of thinking, wow, there's something larger here. I feel connected. So Emerson yeah. takes that and he, he suggests that there's something more powerful here. And he makes a radical and a democratic move. And that is this, um, the soul that we feel connected to, the divine spirit running through all things, is tied to the individual's own possibilities. Emerson says, you don't have to look at the world and think everything's already been done. Whatever Plato thought, you can think. You have the possibility of reinventing the world yourself because you're tied to this larger force. In effect, Emerson's saying that we all, not so much that we have a common human nature, we have a, a common humanity, we have a common divinity. And that common divinity means that each of us is born something new under the sun. And from this perspective, his thinking is egalitarian, and it's focused on developing the widest possible liberty. Now, you might say, this is now an American faith. We all believe every child has possibilities. We all think it's the duty of society to help develop those possibilities for the individual. Because a lot of what you're saying sounds very familiar. Right. But. Emerson's step-grandfather, Ezra Ripley, who was the minister of Concord from 1778 to 1841, and who himself had succeeded Emerson's own um, actual grandfather, William Emerson, who was Concord's minister during the revolution. He stood for an ideal society that was at odds with Emerson's. Let me read you a couple of quotes from him. And okay. he was, let me just add, he was the established minister of the town, paid for by taxes imposed on everyone. The meeting house was, and its upkeep was town 
property and the maintenance of public worship and the minister's salary were all assumed at taxpayers' expense and not choice. Okay, so Ripley's fundamental um, value is community. He once told the congregation, who could live alone and independent? Who but some disgusted hermit or half crazy enthusiast will say to society, I have no need of thee, I'm under no obligation to my fellow men. Or as he wrote to Emerson's younger brother, Edward Bliss Emerson, 1833, no man lives to himself or dies himself. He's necessarily connected with others, with society, and is obliged to contribute of his powers and worldly goods for the benefit of his fellow creatures. And is thus doing good to others that we find the richest comfort to ourselves. So there's Ezra Ripley, the highest value is community. And I call this in the book, an ideology of interdependence. It's, it's a sense of the human, human is a social being who comes into this world to do good to others. Now, here's what Emerson says in December 1837, as he's in a sense announcing his doctrine of individualism. He says, the former men or former generation acted and spoke under the thought that a shining social prosperity was the aim of men. And they compromised, or you might, we might say subordinated ever, the individuals to the nation. The modern mind teaches in extremes that the nation exists for the individual, for the guardianship and education of every man. So this led me to the question, how could Concord, Massachusetts, a town in 1830 of some 2000, a town on the eve of the revolution of about 1600, how could this small town be at one and the same time, the place where a kind of ideology super um, of, of interdependence, of soci sociability, of connection to your neighbor, shaped the fight for independence, for self-rule against the British. And that same town, some 50 years later, comes to symbolize individualism, of separation from the neighbor, of acting on your own as a person. Now, the, the thing that, you know, I didn't know this at all before, it, you know, all these figures from transcendentalism that people may have read when they were taking literature in high school, um, you know, Emerson, Thoreau, Hawthorne, Alcott sisters, they're from the same place. And just, I, I never knew that. And so what have you found? What is it about this place? What kind of town was it? So I'm going to, there's two different ways I answer this in the book. One is your question, which is kind of about a township, which is as much as anything, an answer that you would give in sort of economics and cultural geography. Like, why was it so important? Well, it had always been a county seat, Middlesex County, where the courts met uh, in the mid 19th century, political conventions met and conquered of all sorts and uh, voluntary associations gathered in the local hotel. It was a center of trade, a lot of stores there, making a market center. Um, so people are used to being there. In addition, unlike a lot of New England towns, which scattered and straggled along the road, this had a central common with houses around it. So it kind of symbolized a kind of social order of community. Um, so if you're already used to going to a center, people congregate there. And as trade and commerce and manufacturing take off from the 1820s on, 
conquers quickening as a center. It's the center not only of trade, but of transportation. You know, you got regular stages coming here and going out into the countryside. Um, you've got farmers coming in from the countryside, sometimes selling their goods at Concord stores, and sometimes from Concord going in and selling in Boston Market. So you've got all, um, you know, these way, and also Concord hosts the most important newspaper in Middlesex County from the 1820s to the mid 1840s. That means that the politicians start to gather around the town and the courts. So with all that happening, you've got um, a considerable amount of activity, and it's only 16 to 18 miles from, from Cambridge and Boston. And a turnpike goes, Cambridge uh, turnpike goes straight from Emerson's front door, straight into uh, the center, into Cambridge. And you can go and after the 1790s, take the Charles River Bridge by a different direction and go straight into Boston. So Concord is, in fact, ever more connected to the channels of communication of the day and, and too, is integral to the spread of news and information. It's got taverns where you'd go and pause and have a drink and get the news. So it's part of a cosmopolitan world, even as it's still mostly a farming town. But half of the people who live in Concord are living within a mile of the town center, engaged in trade and professions and the law, um, in um, mechanical enterprises and craft shops and the like. Concord also has one of the earliest cotton textile mills in all of New England and Massachusetts. We started operating in 1807, 1808. So the Industrial Revolution is touching the town. And that actually is a uh, kind of not often remarked phenomenon. You know, you've got the mills start up in Waltham around in, in the, after the War of 1812, and then in Lowell in the 1820s. Concord's in between. So the Industrial Revolution is taking off. This is Silicon Valley of Middlesex County, the heartland of in industry. And in effect, all these small towns around Waltham and Lowell are picking up with enterprise. And Concord is at the hub of that. And I've left out the other thing. So when Emerson comes to live in Concord, he's returning, as he says, to the peaceful fields of my fathers, because it was an ancestral home, though he's a Bostonian. When he comes to live in Concord, he settles in and never leaves again. And he starts developing the ambition. Why don't I invite my intellectual friends to come live here? In 1837, he starts to become good friends with Henry David Thoreau. And they're endlessly talking together, walking to the Walden Pond. And Concord has the appeal for Emerson in two ways. One, it's a small enough town that he can see the forces of the age play out but in the lived experiences of his neighbors. And secondly, you've got Walden Pond, you've got the woods, you still have nature close by where he can walk every day to feel that those currents of divinity in the woods. So he then starts to recruit people. Bronson Alka comes to settle. Margaret Fuller comes to stay for extended periods in his house. Um, a friend of, of 
Alcott and, and Thoreau, Ellery Channing, a poet who marries Margaret Fuller's sister, he comes to live in Concord off and on. And then you've got people who go to Brook Farm, the utopian community, and when they quit, they come to live in Concord. So in time, you have a growing number of people associated with this literary movement, and most importantly, Nathaniel Hawthorne, who when Ezra Ripley dies, rents Ripley's house and remakes it, makes it famous as the old man's. So he's living in Concord in the mid 1840s. And suddenly the press notices it. And next thing you know, Concord and transcendentalism are, are identified together, which does not mean that most people are transcendentalists. It means that the town is famous now for hosting transcendentalists. So you're kind of describing the town as sort of a, a vantage point from which they can see the world as it's going to be in the future creeping up the hill with industrialization modernization but they can also see the world as it as it was and has been through nature uh as kind of a refuge on the other side yeah i think that's exactly so emerson says in his famous american scholar address that we live in an age of revolution when old and new stand side by side and admit of being compared, when the historic glories of the old order and the opportunities and uncertainties of the new are right before you. And he acknowledges that a lot of people will feel uncertain and anxious uh, at this moment when it looks like you know, you're standing on shifting sands. And then he says, what could be a better time to be alive? On the other hand, what if you weren't eager for the old order to change. I thought, or, or you're uncertain about your footing in the new. Because that would make a lot of people uncomfortable. Yeah, and so what have you thought of this? Act one, the old order. Act two, change. Act three, the new order. And what if it all happened so fast that act two was really short? <laughs> and so you got to act three before you ever had a choice. So one of the things we have to realize is that Emerson is, is what I would say, is a dialectical thinker. He's always looking back and forward at the same time, which is the moment of the present. And in that, you know, he's at one and the same time regretting and decrying all the older constraints of tradition and hierarchy and inequality from the past. But the new order of capitalism and mass democracy is bringing its own constraints and its own sense of limitations. You know, at the very moment you feel like you have choices about what to do, you, you might also feel like your choices are being constrained. You know, uh, imagine yourself thinking, the job market's opening up. Oh my God, the job market's closing. The way people often feel today. But Emerson wanted people to seize that moment to feel that possibility, that the very possibility for um, perfectibility within you, you could seize as the possibility within the society itself. There's, uh, so I was, I was very lucky uh, in that when I was in high school, uh, one of our teachers offered what he called a philosophy and literature class. Um, but to this day, it's one of the, it, it's the best class I ever took. Uh, and, you know, me and my friends 20 years later, we still talk about the stuff that we covered. Uh, and we covered a lot of Ralph Waldo Emerson. We read Self-Reliance. Uh, 
you know, trust thyself, every heart vibrates to that iron string. What are, what is some of the things in transcendentalism that people, that have been timeless, that people latch onto in their personal lives? So what is that trust thyself? That you have within you a deeper voice of conscience to know what's right and a deeper sense of authenticity to know what's right for you. You'll know, we all do, when we're feeling uncomfortable with something everybody wants us to do. And Emerson is trying to give people a sense of validation for their own feelings. Whoso would be a man is a nonconformist. So he looked at the world around him and he saw the emergence, not just abstract capitalism and its constraints, he saw the emergence of a mass society, of people gathering in big cities, working in large factories, but also, this is a thing we don't often emphasize, but the rise of Jacksonian democracy, as it was called, mass political parties, with people marching in the streets and torchlight parades and huge conventions, of, you know, tens of thousands on the street cheering and, and uh, carousing. Think about the famous campaign of 1840 for Tippecanoe and Tyler too. And, and, but what's striking about that, it's masses of human beings. I mean, you know, uh, Everyday ordinary people, not elites. Yeah, yeah. But you know, where the older order was people who were ranked in a hierarchy and often dressed accordingly, Here's a world of working men in the mass, but Emerson looked at it and he said, but when you see mass, you see numbers and then you see people organizing them to manipulate them. the political parties. He says, um, he even sees this in Concord and he watches a local party, uh, Democratic Party organizer in Concord rally his men. And Emerson says, all this man cares about are numbers and persons, by which he means personalities. Let's gather up everybody and go cheer for Van Buren or go cheer for Tippecanoe. And we don't really want your individual judgment on men and affairs and the common good. We want you to, here's your ballot, fill it out, and then cheer because you're part of everybody else. You know, this is what Tocqueville viewed as a tyranny of the majority. People would be absorbed in. Emerson also looked at social reformers of his day, people who ran the big benevolent societies, the American Tract Society and the Bible Society, and then the Temperance Society. And what were they interested in as he saw it? They wanted to gather up the biggest number of followers they could, publish the biggest number of Bibles, give them away to the largest number of people, call, or if you're running a religious revival, get the biggest number of converts, and then you could raise money from the biggest number of people. This is not so different from the world that we see every day when our inbox pings and it's yet another political party wanting a contribution. Hi, Joe. Yes, I heard from you yesterday. Um, you know, or, or a charity, you know, um, which will never be satisfied without still more. I admit human need is, is voracious, but you know, certainly what are we in? We're in a world of large scale national bureaucracies with their agents conducting their campaigns in which the individual is just a unit to gather together. Same with the political parties, same for the corporations for, for the dollars they collect. 
Emerson saw the entire world. He was he, you know, present at the creation. And he's critical of all of them because the very possibilities of the individual that could, could take place are going to be lost. And my book, The Transcendentals in Their World, tries to show how these changes took place on the ground level of a small town. A small town, though, is being incorporated within the metropolis and the, and the nation. Now, you know, you have these, these transcendentalist men and women writing in this town. Um, their work and their ideas are being disseminated. What, what is the historical significance of, of those ideas? Um, they're more than just things that we acknowledge in a literature class. You know, what did these ideas help, um, help inspire in Concord and beyond? Right. So let's start with, you might answer this question, but I say, what do these ideas do? Not in general, but at the time they're professed. The ideas of the transcendentalists as a religious awakening of the God within start to gain a hearing and popularity in the middle of the 1830s. At the very moment that Massachusetts is abolishing its Congregationalist religious establishment and opening up the conduct of faith to free competition among any group that can organize, whether they're Congregationalists, Unitarians, Baptists, Methodists, the Church of Latter-day uh, Saints, the Mormon Church, will start up in these years. So will the, Mil um, the Millerites, as they're known. In 1825, Concord has two churches, a dissenting Orthodox Evangelical Church is just starting up, led by Thoreau's aunts. And the town religious establishment, which is liberal and quasi-Unitarian, which represents about 85% of the taxpayers in the town. By 1837, you've got you know, five different religious denominations competing with one another, and half of the town is now signed off from Ezra Ripley's congregation. By 1850, only 15% of the town will still be voluntarily supporting the Unitarian congregation. Okay, transcendentalism starts to get a hearing at the very moment the religious establishment is is voted out. And Emerson and his fellow liberal clergymen are offering, in effect, a strategy for competing in a world of, of denominational conflict. You can't count anybody paying for you anymore. So what's the essence of religion? Is it a church? Well, Emerson and his fellows say, you can worship God on a hillside or in a cathedral. Is it a form of hierarchy in church government? Well, you got the papacy on one side and the Society of Friends, the Quakers, or, or independent congregationalism on another. Is it a creed? Is it a Calvinism or something else? Well, religion can be many things. And they go through all the things and they say, actually, religion can be many things, but it is one thing. It's the spirit of divinity you feel within yourself. That spirit, the, the transcendentalists and you know, as liberal Unitarians say, you don't even need the New Testament. You can know divinity on your own. 
the transcendentalists, when they throw out the New Testament and say, you can know God in nature, are finally going beyond the pale for most Unitarians. And in effect, it's a kind of form of nature religion. But it does provide an answer. You can worship God in the outdoors for people competing for souls. So that's one You don't thing. need a congregation or a clergy to tell you. Right. And once you appeal to that, you're also appealing to the notion that you alone can make the decisions, which will also mean you alone, and this is a second implication, if every soul is equal, if every soul is possibly divine, Emerson says, then slavery ends at once. How can you not be an abolitionist if you know God's within? That's the second thing. Third thing is take Emerson himself. We might ask the question, what does transcendentalism do for transcendentalists? What does Emerson get out of it? And I suggest in the book that Emerson has this beginning his career as a lecturer, making a living by announcing topics and having people come and hear him and pay for tickets. He does this. First, he's resigned the ministry of as the pastor of any individual church. He's willing to give sermons as a guest preacher, but he doesn't speak for any institutional body the way a minister of a given congregation, people might think you're speaking for us. But in addition, he begins as a lecture under the institutional auspices of elite groups like the Boston Society for the Diffusion of Useful Knowledge. And then as I suggested, he simply puts an ad in the newspaper in 1830, 1836 saying, I'm gonna give this series of 10 lectures. You can buy tickets at these booksellers. The lectures are going to be held at um, the Masonic Temple in Boston. He hires somebody to be put on the lights to take the tickets when they come in. And Emerson is dependent only on his own appeal, whether people come or not. In effect, he writes these lectures in Concord and goes to market in Boston, just like his farmer neighbors raise their crops in Concord and go to market in Boston. And when he does that, he's a single man speaking alone to every single person in his audience. And what is his central theme? It's when he does that, he announces the former generations sacrificed uniformly the individual to the nation. The modern mind thinks that society is made for the guardianship of education of every man. So Emerson's individualism expresses his own circumstance in the world as much as speaks to the circumstances of everyone else. Or we put it another way, through his own experience of America and change and of the individual having to decide for himself, Emerson trusts that he speaks for everyone else. Now I do I know you do have to run here shortly, but I, I did want to ask you it's Historians avoid doing this, but it's it's hard not to do this. To it's hard not to compare. Um, you know, we live in a time of rapid change, just like like Emerson and the Transcendentalists did. Uh, and if the the coronavirus pandemic has shown anything, it's that tension between the community versus the individual. Um, 
are are there any lessons here from from your work and from this from Emerson and the Transcendentalists that we can apply today? I think there are two things. One is Emerson preached the doctrine of the individual, but many people considered him too selfish. The fact is, as Ripley's doctrine of interdependence couldn't wholly encompass the ways people were acting on their own, competing with one another, making choices to leave his established meeting house and go someplace else. The notion everybody, only a half crazy enthusiast will say to society have no need of thing. Ripley's way of seeing the world, which still rested upon authority and hierarchy and inequality, didn't speak to everyone. But all the people who'd grown up hearing his sermons couldn't just throw away the notion of interdependence. And the truth is, Emerson himself and Thoreau took for granted that their own assertions of individual freedom were in the thick of the claims of community. In the late 1840s, a rabid dog was rat roaming the, um, outside the center of Concord, biting livestock and dogs on other farms and threatening to come into the center of town. And a number of people in Concord sent a petition to the town meeting asking the selectmen to call a session to consider appointing a board of health for the town and to put down every dog in town. That petition was signed by Ralph Waldo Emerson. And I, when I found that, I thought, how does Emerson, can you imagine today a petition to put down all the dogs? That's, that's you know, um, a euthanasia mandate, not a mask mandate. And so, um, but that was a claim that Emerson could go along with, even as he decried the heavy hand of institutions and government, because um, he still knew that he was fostering individuals for the fullest development of their selves from which the community could benefit. He seemed to see that there might be a problem if the individual is benefiting itself at the expense of the community. Yeah, and he would also think, I believe, that the individual possibility that you develop comes out of the infinite well of human possibility and nature to which we have access. And if you acted selfishly for your own interests, that's not what he had in mind. He imagined that in unfolding your richest possibilities, you're acting unselfishly for the common interest. You know, that um, each of us can enrich the whole and not just ourselves. This is a very optimistic view of human nature as opposed to say like a Hobbesian view. Yes, and his trust in nature drove Hawthorne and Melville crazy. You know, Melville essentially says, who brought you that storm? Who brought you that earthquake? Who brought you that flood? <laughs> <laughs> uh, nature is not always benign. 
All right. Well, um, Robert, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, talk about your book today. Uh, if people want to pick up a copy of The Transcendentalists and Their World uh, or learn more about you and your work, uh, where can they go? Hang on. The book is hefty enough that my laptop sits on top of it so you can see me. But here we go. <laughs> there it is. Transcendentalists and Their World by Robert A. Gross. And do you have a website or anything? that people um, You can go to um, the website at, at the publishers at Macmillan or just Google the Transcendentalists in their world. And you can find me um, as I expect you'll find me on YouTube with um, Can't Make This Up. And you can find me um, on a number of other sites now uh, or at Amazon and other or your independent bookseller or bookshop.org. All right. Well, thank you very much, sir. Okay, thank you.